So I think last week I was t- trying to tell you what kind of a cool ornament to bring to the... See, they don't have a dude's ornament exchange, which probably because dudes wouldn't show up. They'd be like, yeah, okay, whatever. But I got the coolest ornament in the world that if you guys... Every guy in the band this morning is like, that is awesome. That's right. See, my lumberjack thing about the tree falling over is so funny now, right? Welcome to Element. If you're new, there are Bibles in the back. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes on all the communion tables throughout the room. If you have a smartphone, you download the app. It's called Uversion. You click on Live in your smartphone. It'll bring us up by GPS, and you will get all the sermon notes, the questions, and the verses. Even though there's only like three we're going through this morning, but you'll get all those as well as we do this. Um, Christmas Eve service, I'm just going to give you a heads up when, when it comes. Usually, we, we take Christmas Eve very seriously around here, okay? I mean, it is like heaven Christmas Eve, okay? It's, we're, we're like right there. They're, they're very close things. And, but this year, I'm telling everybody who's doing something on stage, they need to wear a, a t-shirt with like a white shirt underneath it, something that, that's t-shirty with a logo on it. And I'm getting so much pushback. Because it's like, this is Christmas. Because, I mean, the first year, James, the guy at his youth, walks in with this really ugly sweater on. And I'm like, you go home and change that. This is Christmas Eve. You know? And he goes, so seriously, for the last three years, you know, we, I, last year I wore a suit. And most of the guys in the band, were, we take it very seriously. And so this year we're a t-shirt. And they're all, this is Christmas Eve. We can't wear a t-shirt. And I'm like, it all goes along what we're talking about. So it's going to be very casual. You walk in the door this year. Don't be like, oh, sacrilege. It's, it's all going to be okay. You will survive, trust me. Uh, one thing I do want to hit on is Christmas for Kids, where we help out some families who fall through the cracks during Christmas, not just families in Element, but families in our community. And if you know somebody in our community has maybe fallen through the cracks, maybe they've hit some really hard times, and they really can't get gifts for their kids at Christmas, let us know. You can send an email to info at ourelement.org. We will get that over to Pam, who will get in touch with the family. Make sure it's okay with them before you give us that name. But we really want to help out some families this year, especially at Christmas. Now, we can also use your help doing a bunch of other stuff. We're going to make these families breakfast. We're going to give them some cookies because, you know, it's like Jesus cookies. They're right there. It's like, seriously, cookies, Christmas Eve, heaven. It's like, wham, the trifecta right there. Boy, all right. Uh, you can also take kids shopping and do a whole bunch of other stuff. We also need donations to help these families as well. So there's a donation box in the back. We just really want to help some people. So kind of getting that out in front of you. Why don't you guys stay with me? You're reading to God's Word. This is Nehemiah 8.10. And Nehemiah said, Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is sacred to our Lord. Do not grieve for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that we'd be a people who understand what it truly means to live life in you. That your joy would be our strength and that we would live lives that fully honor who you are. Amen. Have a seat. So we are coming out of this series called The People of Hope. 
And so I thought we'd do something a little different these next three weeks before Christmas. You might love this. You might hate this. I don't know, but we're going to do a little bit of history, right? So we're going to only hit a few verses today, but we're going to talk about a couple people throughout church history over the next three weeks. Today, we're going to talk about St. Patrick. Next week, we're going to talk about St. Mary. And then the week before Christmas, we'll talk about St. Nick. Really, these people could also just tie into a people of hope because of what kind of things happened to them in their lives. I mean, I ran over a bunch of different things to talk about and focus on as we went through these different historical things, but I, what I really want to kind of settle on is that Jesus is truth and the gospel and mission and what he calls us to and how these people viewed their mission by following Christ and the gospel and what that lived out in their life. In their life. Many times when, when you just say the word saint, some people have a problem with that. Oh, saint, you're making somebody better than somebody else. Well, no. The word saint comes from the New Testament Greek word hagios. Everybody say hagios. There, see, you're all scholars now. Uh, in the New Testament, this word actually indicates consecration to God, and our consecration to God results in God's righteousness lay, being laid upon His people. By calling someone a saint, it does not mean that they are holier or more pure than somebody else. It means that all of God's people are saints because God Himself makes them so. Saint literally means purity by implication. Like when I was a kid, when I went out and I would play, sometimes I would get in trouble for just being near the chaos. Because my mom would always think I was causing the chaos. One time, my brother and his friends are playing baseball in the street. I ran out into the street. Hey, bam, I get hit in the face with the baseball. I ran out. Mom, she's all smacked me on the butt. What'd you do? Because I'm just in proximity <laughs> to the chaos. Now, on the, that's a negative point. But on the positive side of that, we are considered holy because God has laid his righteousness upon us. Open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1, verse 1. Being a saint means we are always confronted with the fact that holiness and sanctification, the ongoing process of God changing us, is not some mystical or magical thing. It is simply a designation. When we understand the word saint, it's a recognition of our position and relationship with Jesus Christ. In Christianity, it means a restored relationship with God through Jesus. We are children, we are thus heirs, so we are all citizens of God's kingdom. In Philippians 1.1, Paul starts his letter like this, like he does most of his letters. He says, to all the saints, that's the word hagias, to all the saints. All, not certain people who have done the three miracles and jumped through the hoop. All the saints in Christ Jesus who were at Philippi. You know what? You are the saints. You are the hagias. Now, whenever I think of the word hagias, it always makes me think of like a Celtic meal, like haggis, which is a very poor transition, but that's my transition to get into where we're going. Uh, one of my most favorite people in church history is a guy named Patrick. We call him St. Patrick. He is simply amazing because of what God did through him, not because of the green beer, right, but because of what God did through him. Uh, he works in a country that does not know Jesus, believes it has no use for Jesus, and when he is done by the outcroppings of his life, over 6,000 churches of indigenous people are planted throughout the Celtic countryside. Uh, the Apostle Paul, he felt he was called to go to the Gentiles. Patrick has a dream, and he was called to go to the Celtic Irish and reach them. And the Celtic people were crazy. I mean, you have no, you think might some Irish people today that are crazy? You have no idea what they were like back then. I mean, this is crazy, not in a good way. I mean, Patrick cannot walk up to these guys and say, hey, you good moral guys, here's Jesus. You know, they thought they knew how to enjoy life. So what Patrick does is he shows up and he teaches them how to truly enjoy life. 
In about the late 4th century, Patrick's growing up in what is now northeast England. Uh, this is area known as the Britons at, at the time. And so the, and Patrick's ancestry is literally from the Celtic people, but his family themselves were, were aristocrats when, from when the Romans had come in and conquered the area. So Patrick's family was actually culturally Roman and Celtic. Uh, his first language was actually Latin. His family was Christian. His grandfather was a priest, so he grows up learning a little bit about Christianity, probably went through some catechisms and things like that, but he only becomes a nominal Christian, much like a lot of kids who grow up in church today. They kind of go to church, oh, yeah, I got it, I see it. It doesn't really affect their lives, and they go out and kind of live like total nut jobs for a whole bunch of years. That's Patrick. Makes fun of the church, lives like most guys in America do, with self-centered upon themselves, thinks everything's about them. But when Patrick is 16, years old, a band of Celtic pirates from Ireland. They come in and they invade the region. They capture Patrick and some other young men. They force them onto a ship. They sail to Ireland and sell them into slavery. See how this could be a people of hope, right? If you went through that series, you're like, hey, this makes sense just like the, the last series. The, the, Patrick, the, the, the pirates actually sold Patrick to a prosperous tribal chief and druid. And then this guy takes Patrick and makes him go out and herd his cattle. So Patrick is a slave for six years. During the time of his enslavement, he experiences three profound changes in his slavery. The first one is this. When Patrick was isolated in the wilderness, herding cattle, it began to connect him with God, what he called God's natural revelation, earth, wind, and fire. Not like the band, not like the element symbol, but you know, with God's actual creation. He senses the winds, the seasons, the creatures, the nights under the stars, and he, and he identifies this with the presence of God, that God begins to infill him. And he says, this is the triune God. Patrick writes this. He says, after I arrived in Ireland, I found myself pastoring flocks daily. I prayed a number of times each day. More and more, the love and fear of God came to me, and faith grew, and my spirit was exercised until I was praying up to a hundred times every day. Wow. And at night nearly as often. Patrick, in his slavery, becomes a devout Christian, and the change in his life becomes obvious to his captors. The second thing he learns is he comes to understand the Celtic Irish people, their language, their culture, their customs, from the bottom side of their society, as only one that hits that can understand. And the third thing is Patrick came to love his captors. He came to love them, to identify with them, and hope for their reconciliation to God. So after six years of slavery, a voice comes to Patrick in a dream and says, you're going to go home. Look, your ship is ready. And so he wakes up the next day. He flees to the coast, negotiates his way onto this ship, which is a whole story in its own. He eventually returns to his people in England where he trains for the priesthood. His training immerses his mind in the scriptures. It grounds him in basic orthodox theology, which we should all be at some point. He then goes and he serves as a parish priest in England. Years later, 20-some-odd years later, at the age of 48, this is past a man's life expectancy at this time in the 5th century, Patrick gets another dream, and this changes his life again. In the dream, an angel approaches him with letters from his former captors in Ireland, and they say, we appeal to you, holy servant boy, to come and walk among us. So Patrick doesn't waste any time. He gets up the next day, and he, and he takes the gospel to the Celtic Irish people. He goes and he gets some approval. He gets ordained as a bishop. He's appointed to Ireland as history's first missionary bishop. Tradition tells you that he arrives in Ireland with just a few priests, a couple like seminary students, and with these few people, he goes and changes the entire Celtic countryside. 432 A.D. 
it is really impossible today to underestimate the magnitude and significance of what Patrick set out to do. See, the, the, the Irish Celtic people, they were considered barbarians. Nobody can reach the barbarians because they're crazy. At, at this time, the oldest and most perennial issue in Christianity in regard to world mission hung on these two terms. These two terms were called Christianizing and civilizing. Missionary leaders at Patrick's time, and, and even now, under the belief that the two goals of Christian mission are to evangelize by civilizing people. Now, if you've been around here any length of time, is that what the goal of mission is? No, it's not. Our goal is to always lift up Jesus Christ to point to who he is, and Jesus brings about this whole idea of Christianization. The whole debate that they had wasn't over, over Christianization and civilization. It was debate over priority, which one actually goes first. Some people held that a certain degree of civilization was first necessary to enable people to understand the gospel. And I, always, and I think that, and I go, yeah, that's why Jesus went to the prostitutes and the tax collectors and the sinners. Right. Jesus went to people who basically everybody consider uncivilized and preached the gospel. Others argued that you begin with Christianization, but then this will bring about the civilization. But the problem is that civilizing is always based on the culture who sends somebody out. It's kind of like America thinks all the world needs to be like America. Oh, you know, you're in the middle of a, of a Saharan desert. You need a video projector, and you need Christmas trees at Christmas time with lights on them, and you need to be able to have a keynote behind you. And you this is how you're supposed to do church. No, it's not how you're actually supposed to or have to do church. It's this whole idea of civilizing. In the 17th century, Puritans sent missions to the Native American Indians. They organized the converts into churches and Christian towns, which was okay. But they did it in order to enculturate them, and I quote, to a more decent and English way of living. That's why they did it. Even in countries who, who would have what we consider a high culture, like, like China or India, European missionaries went in and they stressed civilizing as much, if not more, than the whole idea of evangelizing people. Because they thought, well, these people are barbarians. That's a barrier to Christianity. I will tell you, Jesus is the one who saves. We simply live our lives and show who he is and preach by our words and our actions who he is. See, at this time, the, the Roman Christian leaders, they assumed, number one, that a population had to be civilized enough to be Christianized. That is, some degree of civilization is a prerequisite for Christianization. This is why when people say things like, oh, I can't go to church. If I go to church, lightning will strike me. Really? See, you don't have to get cleaned up to take a bath. You hop in the bath dirty, and that's how you get cleaned up. You, there, there isn't a prerequisite of civilization to come and know Jesus Christ. I mean, I don't know if you've ever sent around talk with your friends and you guys make judgments about people. Oh, look at them. Oh, I really wish they knew Jesus. I'm not going to tell them. But I wish somebody else would, you know, because they really need Jesus. And you kind of point your finger around at other people and look at them. The second thing is that once a society was sufficiently civilized, then they started to teach them how to do church the right way. They wanted them to read and speak Latin. They wanted them to do Roman customs, do church the Roman way. Uh, about a month ago, the, the staff and elders and the gospel community coaches, we went to this, this uh, conference. And we get to this conference, and, and do you know, I found out something very interesting. We're odd, okay? We, we are not, Element is not like, we're sitting around there singing these songs, talking, almost looking around going, this place is driving me crazy. <laughs> because we are so, di not, I mean, we're kind of the same, but we're just a little bit different, and that's actually a good thing. We're not civilized, apparently, that, that, that's what it is. You see, but th this is not how the first Christians did mission. This is not how Patrick did mission. When Andrew plants Christianity, he does it in a barbarian population in Scythia. Thomas reached Parthians and Syrians. When Matthew is martyred, 
it ignites a Christian movement among a, a cannibal population. Those are barbarians. But from the second century on, no organized mission was sent to the barbarian peoples like the Celts or the Goths or the Visigoths or the Vandals or the Franks or the Huns or the Vikings, people who lived at the fringes of the Roman Empire. The church assumed that reaching barbarians was impossible because a population, by definition, had to be literate and rational enough to understand Christianity. They had to be cultured and civil enough to become real Christians when they did understand it. I mean, I don't know if you've ever looked around your neighborhood and you got like the crazy neighbor down the street with all the stuff in their lawn, they never mow it or clean it up, and it's like, you're like, man, those people, they're just crazy. That's how they saw these barbarians, but a thousand times worse. Those are the people we need to be going to, talking, inviting to your gospel community. That guy, I don't want that guy. Exactly, that's why you need that guy, because he needs to be in there. See, Patrick, like the early church, found value in the Celtic Irish people. The Romans did not even know them and didn't even care to know them. The Romans thought, again, that these Irish people were barbarians because, number one, they were not literate. They were not, they didn't read. They were essentially a oral culture. They would share things and pass things down orally. Maybe you have some neighbors and you're like, my neighbors can't even read. Awesome. They're like the Irish. Go and talk to them. You know, they're also considered an emotional people. They had volatile personalities, let known for letting the full range of human emotions get out of control. You know, the Irish are like, you know, like drunk, angry, or asleep. Sometimes it's all three at the same time, right? That's, that's the Irish. If, and if you're Irish, you're like, that's right. You know, you know what it's like. The Romans equated being civilized with emotional control. In warfare, what would happen at this time, if you were to fight the, the Celtic Irish, they would strip naked before the battle. They would have a shield, a sword, sandals, and a little ornament on their neck, and they'd rush you, ah! screaming and howling at you. Now imagine you're on the other side of this. If a man's going to fight you naked, he has some confidence in his fighting skills, right? You're going to be like, ah! and people would flee the field when the Irish Celtic show. Ah! Like, oh, I'm going. You know? They just might take my clothes, make me do that too. I'm not doing that. But what they also did is some of them actually practiced human sacrifice in their religious rituals. And so Patrick's mission to Ireland was unprecedented because these people were widely presumed to be impossible to reach. It's like if someone came up to us today and said, I'm going to the Taliban. I'm going to go to Afghanistan. I'm going to live in these villages. And I'm going to reach Osama bin Laden's closest advisors. He's like, yeah, you're going to die. That's what you're going to do. But this is what Patrick was doing. See, at this time, again, the church wouldn't reach anybody. They, they, they wouldn't reach these people. They saw barbarians. But how did Patrick see it? Patrick saw Ireland populated by 150 extended tribes, each tribe fiercely loyal to its tribal king. Ireland's total population at this point is between 200 and 500,000 people. But all the tribes spoke the same basic language, different dialects, but essentially the same language that Patrick learned while he was a slave. They shared more or less the same culture with different loyalties. So Patrick understands them deeply. The most strategic, strategically significant single insight that was to drive the expansion of Celtic Christianity was the fact that Patrick understood the people and their language and their issues and their ways. This has huge implications for the gospel today because when the people know that Christians understand them, that they care about them, that we have the same struggles they do, that we don't have to walk around and pretend everything is just all right, it infers that maybe the high God understands these people too. When Christians walk around dumbfounded, and they just say things like, well, why'd you get a tattoo? Or how can you listen to that music? Or, or why do you dress that way? It makes people think that God is out of touch when it's simply his people who are out of touch. 
You see, periodically, the, the, Irish, were, the, 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 the Irish were accustomed to paradox and, and the things that they believed and the things that they saw. This actually made them appreciate some of the things in Christianity. When Patrick goes and he starts talking about the Trinity, right? Here, here's a, I got a symbol. Here. Oh, there you go, sorry. I'm, I'm jumping in front of the guy doing the slides. I'm really sorry. This is my bad. All right. So you, you have this idea of the, the, the Trinity, right? People say, oh, Christians today, th- they made up the Trinity. Really? We can't even explain it correctly. We don't understand it. How do I make that up? Right? So he comes and he starts talking about the triune God. Because of their belief in the, in the whole idea of triads, it enabled them to actually believe in our triune God very quickly. Christianity's contrasting features of idealism and practicality actually engages identical traits in the Irish character. No other religion could have engaged the Irish people's love for heroism and stories and legends like Christianity. Many of Christianity's values and virtues essentially matched and fulfilled ideas in Irish piety and folklore. I mean, Irish Christianity was able to deeply affirm and fulfill the Irish love for nature and the belief in the closeness of the divine that God created all of creation, and that we are to be able to people who steward that. Christianity fueled and amplified the Irish love for learning and adapted to the Irish way of oral tradition, of memorizing rather than writing and reading. And when you say, hey, memorize scripture, the Irish, they had you beat hands down, hands down. I think the most important difference, though, was how Christianity contrasted with the Irish observing the primal religion. Because what the Irish observed in the religion was the Druids. This was Ireland's traditional religious leaders for centuries. They enhanced their status and power through closely guarding all of their secret knowledge. When Christianity shows up on the scene, it is open to all. There is no secrets from anybody. It had as its central aim the glory of God, which brings about joy for his people. That is the central aim. Patrick, what would he do? He'd arrive at a settlement, and he would engage the king or another leader at the place and say, hey, you want to know who Jesus is? If they said no, he would say, well, can I settle next to your tribe? And most times they would say, yeah, you can go ahead and do that. And so when they did that, they would start to pray for sick people. They would counsel people. They would mediate conflicts. It would help them plant their crops. On at least one occasion, it's recorded that Patrick goes out and he blesses a river and prays to the people to catch more fish. This actually made them love Patrick. He's actually praying for to catch fish. What a great dude. That's an awesome. We're going to call him St. Pat. No, that's not how it came about. They would also start speaking and telling stories and, and kind of open-air evangelism of some sort. But they would tell parable and story and poetry, song. They would use visual symbols. They would use visual arts. Patrick and his people would spend months ministering to a community and then offering them faith within the tribe. And what would start to happen is a church would emerge within this tribe that was astonishingly indigenous. When God blesses the efforts of what they're doing, they they would build a church. The founding of a church is a public affair. Everybody's invited. The first converts get baptized. Public affair. Everybody is invited. And then they'd pick up and they would begin to move on. But Patrick would leave one of his protégés behind to oversee this church and its people. A couple kids from the village would tag along with Patrick. They would learn the scriptures. They would learn who Jesus is. And eventually at some point when a church got planted, he would leave one of them at that place and then move on over and over and over and over. For 28 years, he does this until his death in AD 460. And and by this time, other missionary bands were in. They were taking Patrick's model and doing that to other Celtic settlements. Today, when we look at this, it is almost impossible to say what Patrick and his people achieved in his 28 years of mission to the barbarian Irish. There was no indigenous Irish Christian movement before Patrick. 
an ancient document called the Annals of the Four Masters. It reports that in Patrick's mission, literally planted 700 churches, and he ordains 1,000 priests. Within his lifetime, 40 or more of Ireland's 150 tribes become substantially Christian. One historian says it like this. He says, Most certainly he did not succeed in converting all the heathens of the island, but he won so many of them for Christ. He founded so many churches, ordained so many clerics, kindled such a zeal in men's hearts that it seems right to believe that to him was directly due the wonderful outblossoming of Christianity which distinguished Ireland in the following ages. Simply because he listened, was obedient to God, understood the people he was reaching, and reached them in the way that they understood. You know, Patrick was the first public man in Ireland to speak and crusade against slavery. Within his lifetime, the Irish slave trade comes to a halt. Other forms of violence like murder, intertribal warfare, they decreased because his communities began to model what Christian living and faithfulness was supposed to look like. Generosity to all the Irish. Now, you would naturally assume that the, the British church would be like, oh, you're doing a great job, that, that, that's awesome, we sent you, we're going to affirm your mission. Not at all. They were angry at Patrick because he spent too much of his time with barbarians. They wanted him to spend, not spend time with pagans and, and sinners, and they wanted him to spend time with people he could civilize. And so they were angry at him. It's kind of like Jesus. Jesus gets savagely criticized for hanging out with prostitutes and tax collectors and beggars and, and sinners. But this is what Patrick did. Takes Jesus' model and does it. Patrick actually reminds the church that it is commanded by the risen Christ to go into all the world, to preach the gospel to all creation, and teach all nations. In anticipation of the when the Lord, he says, will pour out his spirit over all flesh and make peoples who were not his into a children of the living God. So Patrick writes this. This is why it's come about in Ireland. That's all, that's all I got. All right. This is why it came about in Ireland that people who had no acquaintance with the living God are recently made a people of the Lord and are known as children of God. For God gave me such grace that many people through me were reborn to God and afterward confirmed and brought to perfection. You know what he just said? These are the saints. These are the saints. The illiterate, crazy barbarians, they are the Haggaiahs, just like you in the British church just like you and I today. See, how does this strengthen our faith? What do we learn from Patrick? Well, if you've been an element at any time, everything, you learn everything from what Patrick does here. He goes and they lift up who Jesus Christ is. See, you, I'm not telling you, you may think, well, well, I'm not very good at evangelizing. I'm not telling you to hand out tracts, but the only time you ever talk about Jesus shouldn't be the bumper sticker on the back of your car that says, no Jesus, no peace. That shouldn't be the only time that someone knows you're a Christian. It should be how you live. It should be with with the gracious words that you speak. It should be within everything that we do. I mean, can you live your life? Well, good. You can be an evangelist. You can be on mission. You see, you are perfectly contextualized to the audience that you are in. Your job, your home, your family, your neighborhood, you understand those places because you live there. You are in a perfect place to be exactly like Patrick and have wonderful outcroppings of Jesus Christ's gospel in your life. Open your Bibles to Acts 17. We'll end with this. In Acts 17, what you see is that Paul does this whole idea of what Patrick does, contextualized to an audience. Acts 17, starting in verse 16, Paul is in Athens. He's waiting for some people to show up. This is what he says. Acts 17, verse 16. We'll start there. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols, as we would be. 
So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. So he goes and talks to people in the church. Hey, we've got to do something about this. Goes and starts to talk to people in the synagogue. Apparently nobody from the church followed him there, so he's out there alone. A group of Epicurean Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we want to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. He doesn't belittle them. He talks and he says, For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I studied your culture. I found an altar I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Now what you worship is something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. And he does. And this is what Patrick did. You know, most Christians today, when we get upset about idols in our town, look at all the billboards or look what's on them, we want to go and hold a rally or get legislation to try and get rid of these gods. Or we make fun of people and we, and we call them names. But Patrick, like Paul, uses their idols, their cultures, their metaphors to proclaim the gospel. This is what we want Element to be about. People being able to understand the gospel in which the culture in which they live. The gospel never changes. It is always the same. But it fits very well into cultural containers. And the culture in which you live, you are perfectly suited to reach. There are two ways that people have done evangelism throughout the history of the church. The first one is this way, and it's called behave, believe, belong. That's the first way. And what it, it works like this. This is what we consider the Roman way. All right? you, you would have, go out and get, bring people to church. Bring them in, bring them in, bring them in. And then someone's going to preach at them and tell them. Then we're going to call them to a decision. Then if they accept this decision, then the person's going to be welcomed into the church. Friendship is extended, and then they get trained to do service and ministry. The Celtic way, the way Patrick did it, the way the early church did it, is you guys are sent out. You go out to where you live. You make friendships with people. Not, not because you have to, but because you want to. Because God loves all people, you then should love all people. You make friendships. You invite them to do things with you in your gospel community, at your church. Hey, let's go. We're going to do these things. And they participate with you in your community and ministry. And hopefully through this, they get the ongoing presentation of the gospel by how you live, by what you say, by how hopefully different Christians live their lives in a good way, not a crazy way, but in, in a good way. And at some point, God calls, and there's faith and conversion, and the church celebrates, and this person just continues on the journey they have been on by being in relationship with believers in the first place. Ministry simply continues. Discipleship continues. There's this old Chinese poem, and it says, Go to the people, live among them, learn from them, love them. Start with what they know, build on what they have. That's what we do. You offer joy and hope and peace and grace. You see, you are not Patrick. You are you. And you are placed specifically where you are for a reason, to spread the fame and the name of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You are the saints. You are the Hagios. And God calls us to be a people who are about his mission. And that, this morning, is, is my great admonition for you. Live as the people of God on mission. We invite you guys to communion this morning. 
Communion is where you break that cracker like Christ's body was broken for us. You dip it in the wine of the grape juice. That was, represents his blood that was shed for you and I to remind us that we are saints, that we have been saved, that we have bowed our lives to Jesus Christ and we were remade and renewed and God, by implication, has placed his righteousness upon us. The band's going to come up and as they do, uh, we invite you guys, as I said, to take communion. There'll be some deacons and elders in the back and if you need prayer, maybe you've never understood that you are the Haggai's, that you are the saints. Go and pray with them, and hopefully they can help reset your mind to get you focused on mission. If you have never come to know who Jesus Christ is, that's the first place to start. That's a great place to start, all right? Uh, because we want you guys to understand, first and foremost, that everything we do is about Jesus and his life in us and what he calls us to. There's offering boxes on the side wall and in the back. We give because God gave so much to us. Giving is simply part of our worship. It's a response to what he is doing in us, so we give you that opportunity every week. We don't pass a plate. We just set it there so that you guys, as God calls you, can give. Uh, there's food and stuff in the back. And again, we invite you guys, if you aren't in a GC, you don't know a whole lot of people, eat some food, get to know some other people. If you don't have anything to say, shove something in your mouth and eat it and be like, oh, I'm eating, I can't talk. You know, but Something like that. Um, Guys, I will tell you, Jesus is better and greater than you can ever imagine. He is a great and a good God, and he calls his people to live on mission. So we encourage you and your lives to live on his mission. Let's pray. Father, this morning, we ask that we, as your people, would truly understand mission and calling and hope and grace and life and truth and goodness And that these wouldn't be things that separate us from people. They would be things that actually connect us better to the people that you call us to live among. Because, Father, we are citizens of your kingdom. And yet you leave us in this world. Not to pull us out, not to be separate from everything. But to fully engage in the cultures in which you have set us. Making who you are more understandable by how we live the lives that you have so graciously given us. So this morning, I ask that you would teach us, that you would grow us and that you would renew us so that we truly do walk out of this place living on mission, understanding that our lives outside of these doors are much more important than how we live inside these doors. And that if we have anybody in our lives that we look at and we consider barbarians, we would understand that you would call them to be the saints too. That we would honor you that you would stir in us a passion and desire that we cannot explain, but we simply go in, fully honoring you. And we ask these things in your son's great and precious and good name. Amen.